And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another playoff edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. Ian Medley, Sean McIndoo with you. For this episode of the podcast, coming up in the next hour, the Habs opening night win over Winnipeg, overshadowed uh, by an ugly hit on Jake Evans. We'll chat about Mark Shifley having a hearing with the Department of Player Safety and what the punishment might be and what the punishment should be. Can anybody stop the Colorado Avalanche? We'll talk about the most anticipated series of the playoffs, but it's certainly not going the way the Vegas Golden Knights expected. We'll tackle some of your listener questions as well, including what the Blue Jackets uh, can get for Seth Jones and if there are any parallels between this year's Maple Leafs and the Red Wings of the early 90s. And yeah, of course, we're going to talk to Sean all about that uh, Maple Leaf collapse. As always, we'll wrap up the show with a little This Week in Hockey History, looking back at the Florida Panthers' improbable playoff upset over the powerhouse Penguins and Jacques Demers' bold call in the Stanley Cup Final. But Sean, as we uh, open this podcast here uh on a, on a Thursday, I think it feels like we got to tackle what is obviously the most newsworthy uh, and significant story, which is the the thing I alluded to there, Mark Shifley, with a hit on Jake Evans. It it really brought me right back. I don't know if you felt the same way, but um, watching that hit live and in real time brought me right back to the John Tavares incident, where you just you feel so uncomfortable as a viewer, and all you can think about is, my goodness gracious, I hope this young man. Uh, is okay. And boy, that, that was a really frightening incident that, that to me really overshadowed uh, the, the main storylines from game one. Yeah, I, I think it did. And it's, it's unfortunate because that was a, it was a pretty entertaining game. Uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, after, after both these teams came off of series where maybe there was not as much 
entertainment value as we thought there might be, either because the, the series was short in the case of the Jets or low scoring in the case of Montreal. This was a fun game right up until the end. And, uh, you know, un- unfortunately, if, if the, that last minute plays out differently, we're probably having different discussions about how the series is going to go and uh, who's going to do what. And, um, but unfortunately it's, it's all Mark Shifley and Jake Evans and, and waiting on news of, of that because that was just such a ugly moment, whatever you thought of it. Uh, it's, it's awful to see something like that and, and to have it happen in this league for the second time in a couple of weeks is, uh, was not, uh, not good. No. And you know, the, I see some people, I think it's a minority of people, but you always see some people defend the hit and say, hey, it's playoff hockey. Evan should have had his head up. I, I don't agree with that. Listen, I, I I liken that to, you know, when you see in football, a wide receiver goes over the middle and he's defenseless and there's just a reckless hit from a safety. Uh, that That's what it felt like. It felt predatory. It felt unnecessary. It felt vicious, and and when you track it, this is what I think is really important because I've actually watched um, the clip, and I like the fact that some people have posted the clip without the hit, but you watch Shifley skate 190 feet up the ice. That's my issue with it. I know there's so much talk, Sean, from people defending the hit. Look, look, his arms were in, head wasn't the principal point of contact. My biggest issue with it was the length of the ice that Shifley traveled to hit Jake Evans, and I think... Maybe people need to understand that charging is a suspendable offense. It's not just a, hey, he got his elbow up or he, he hit his shoulder to his head. It's, you, guy, you come from 190 feet from the other side of the rink and hit a defenseless player. I'm sorry, but that's got to be a suspendable, suspendable offense, no? Yeah, it's, it's charging. I mean, that was, that was textbook charging. And, and it's a rule that's not very well understood uh, I've I've written about this a couple of times in the past. I, I think most people haven't read the rule. Fans and media and broadcasters who comment on it don't seem to realize what the rule says. There's a misconception out there that uh, charging is when you are taking strides uh, it, to make a hit. And that if you glide into it, stop moving your feet, that it's not charging. That's not true. That's not in the rule book. Uh, that has never been there. Uh, charge is, uh, it's based on the speed and the distance traveled. And in this case, I mean, you almost physically couldn't travel a further distance. So it's a charge. He got five minutes for charging in the game. That was the right call. And he's going to get suspended for charging. And that will also be the right call. Now, having said that, I don't defend the hit. I do think... That there's, I disagree with some people who are seeing more intent here than I am. I, and and here I'm talking about, I've seen this described as like a Dale Hunter 2.0 situation where people are looking at this and they're saying, Mark Shifley knows that Jake Evans is going to score and the game is going to be over. And so he's going to punish this guy for scoring a goal he's going to take a cheap shot at a defenseless player well he was a defenseless player and it was a cheap shot in the sense that as i said it's charging but i don't view this as as mark shifley saying oh this guy's going to score i'm going to take him out this to me is is mark shifley saying 
this guy has got a chance to score. If he scores the game's over, I've got to stop that goal from happening. And I think the fact that he goes end-to-end all the way across the ice, while it makes this absolute textbook charging, that also, to me, shows me that this, this wasn't a guy who set out to hurt someone. This is a guy who's setting out to bust his behind on the back check to get back and try to prevent a goal. And he gets there a fraction of a second late. I know some people have said, well, why didn't he play the puck? That's a tough play to make. You know, the puck's moving. Puck's small. He's got to try to poke it at full speed. Yeah, the, that's an option. You can do that. Or you can try to play through the body. The, the, the way I've described this is I feel like there are so many hits that happen in this league where we end up arguing over whether it's clean or not by the textbook definition of the rules. And we sort of skip over the question of why did this hit even have to happen in the first place? Like, yeah, maybe that maybe it's technically clean, but there's three minutes left in a 5-1 game. Why are you even throwing this hit? Or what's even the, you know, what was even the purpose of, of making a hit like that? And this one's kind of the opposite. I don't think there's any argument about whether it's clean. It's it, it it it's absolutely a charge, and it and it was one that had a catastrophic result, and and that's that's going to be a suspension. But when it comes to why was the hit thrown, to my eyes, it's pretty clearly a case of a guy who's trying to break up a scoring play, and that doesn't let him off the hook, but it does take it out of the the, the Dale Hunter category that a lot of people seem to want to put it in yeah you know i i look at it though like and you see again the devastating uh consequences from the hit um it's tough because i think so many times we we do look at the letter of the law and we try and like it's almost like and i took a couple of uh law classes when we were in uh in journalism school back in the day and remember there was there was always the case and it's like from the 1960s and supreme court united states and they're trying to rule on what constitutes an obscene uh, image and the judge's uh, ruling was basically look i just know it when i see it and that's how i felt about that hit yesterday like i i just knew that it's wrong like i i don't want to nitpick it it's just wrong yeah. and um i'm glad that he's getting a phone hearing uh i think what some people are angry about is the fact that it's not uh, an in-person or a zoom one so that that means it's gonna be five games and fewer for shifley if that's i right. had to guess and I know that we sometimes spin a roulette wheel. My guess is two games for Mark Shifley. That's my guess. Yeah. I, 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 I think wrong. it's going to be more than that. You never really know with the Department of Player Safety. Um, and maybe some of that depends on what news we might get about, about Jake Evans today because they do look at severity of injury. Um. I think it's going to be higher than that. But yeah, the, the fact that it's going to be five games or less, I mean, you can do the math, right? Where we just finished game one. That means there's there's a chance Mark Shifley comes back in this series. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. You, you, you don't have to be a hockey fan. You don't have to be a rule book expert to see that hit play out. You don't even need replays. You just see it once and you go, that looked awful. And again, the, the, not excusing the hit because this is one of those plays where if you're going to hit like that, it has to be clean. That's it's on you as the guy delivering the hit. Same thing. When you hit a guy in the head, you can say, I didn't mean to that's, 
that's all well and good. But the rule book doesn't say you're not allowed to mean to hit a guy in the head. The rule book says you can't hit a guy in the head. And the rule book doesn't say you're not allowed to charge the entire length of the rink and launch into a guy in an attempt to hurt him. It says you can't do that, period. Um, obviously, if we think it's intentional, that puts it in a whole new category. And we shouldn't be talking, we should be talking about in-person hearings and guys being done for the rest of the playoffs. If we really think that that's what Mark Scheifele is trying to do. I think the fact that you watch the hit and that he's he's got the elbow tucked, he's got you know everything else um, about the moment of impact fits some sort of definition of a clean hit, which again, doesn't excuse it because it's charging. So it's not clean by definition. But again, that tells me this isn't a guy going, I'm going to wreck this dude. I'm going to try to put this guy out of the series. I'm going to punish him because guys who do that don't usually tuck the elbow down and, and, and hit that way. Um, I think it's just, it, it's, it's a reckless, careless play that has an awful result. And that's on the player delivering the hit. And, you know, I'm, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm not going to hang him out to dry and say he was trying to hurt the guy. But I'm also not going to let him off the hook because of that, because it, it doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You have to hit clean in this league, and that's not a clean hit. And, you know, as we wrap up this portion of the conversation, one thing I want to talk about just for a moment, and I think, you know, there's a talk about a lack of respect from Shifley and, a, you know, disregard for his, uh, his safety. I think we need to point out what Nikolai Ehlers did uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the heart, or, sorry, the heat of that moment. When all of the players were gathered around and they were going after Shifley, the Habs players, your immediate thought, and you could see the linesman trying to hold players back, for Nikolai Ehlers, Sean, to have the presence of mind to almost put his body out, put his arms out to sort of create a, uh, like a blockade um, to, 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 to prevent players from falling on uh, Jake Evans, I thought was such a respectful and thoughtful uh, gesture in the heat of the moment, we can't forget that because I think a lot of people are going to say, look, these players don't respect each other, but Nikolai Ehlers showed some respect there. And I think we can't let that moment pass and understand that players um, players do have respect for each other. Sometimes it's uh, when the game is on, they don't have it. But boy, I love seeing that gesture from Nick Ehlers uh, on, on Wednesday night. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's smart in the moment and, and credit to the linesman too, because usually the linesmen are trained when a scrum like that breaks out, you jump in and start picking guys to to peel off the pile and he was smart enough to physically get down there and, and block we we do see this in the NHL it's not not common but it's uh, every now and then you'll see a hit where somebody gets hurt and everybody comes and piles in meanwhile the guys laying there and uh, you know we've we've seen some some near misses where guys are you know getting shoved and pushed and uh, I mean, obviously, the Steve Moore situation comes to mind as a case where everybody jumped on the pile, and and meanwhile, this this kid's hurt at the bottom of it and and not getting the attention he needs. So, good on them for for being aware of the situation and uh, um, making sure to to try to protect somebody who obviously in that moment uh, very much needed it. Uh, so obviously, look, we got a Winnipeg Montreal series that not a lot of people saw coming when the Stanley Cup playoffs started. Right, they're the three and four seeds. In the uh, the North Division, a lot of people figured Toronto was going to get through, Edmonton would get through, and instead we're getting Winnipeg-Montreal. The reason why we have that, of course, uh, your beloved Toronto Maple Leafs take it out in a 3-1 series uh, collapse. And before we get your fresh take on this, Sean, okay, 
I want to give you some credit because let's go back to let's roll the tape, as they like to say in the industry. Here, folks, is Sean McIndoo. Down goes Brown seven days ago. I want to stress this seven days ago when the Maple Leafs had a 3-1 series lead. Have a listen to what he had to say. The series isn't over yet. We're, we're four games in to a potentially seven-game series. So there's a lot of room left for, for twists and turns. And I know, look, the Leafs have been the better team. There's an expectation that they'll close it out tonight. But it's not very hard to imagine a situation where Carey Price has a great game tonight. Canadians steal game five. Now you go back to Montreal. There's going to be a few fans in the building. That changes the dynamic. Montreal wins game six. Now it's game seven. Oh, my goodness. And, and here we go. And all the all the storylines and narratives and everything spring to life. All right, man. I got to give you credit. Because even at 3-1, you could hear yourself talking yourself into, ah, it's going to be 3-2. Then they get back home. They got the fans. It's 3-3, game seven. You never know what's going to happen. And that's exactly how it played itself out. Yeah, man. This, this is not my first day here. This is, uh, I've... I have been down this path with this team and uh, it's, uh, look, I'm not going to sit here and say, I thought they were going to lose the series when they're up 3-1, but I, I certainly wasn't looking ahead to round two yet. And uh, and it it played out, uh, unfortunately, pretty similar to that. And and if anything, it was, it was maybe a little bit worse than from a, from a Maple Leafs fan's perspective, because in the scenario I described, I, I kind of had Carey Price standing on his head and stealing games, and Carey Price played really well in those last three games, but I, I'm not convinced that he stole any of them. Uh, the, the Leafs just really didn't, didn't show up in especially games five and six. Game seven, I will give Montreal credit. Game, game seven, Toronto didn't look good for a lot of it, but I felt that like that had more to do with Montreal than it did Toronto. Uh, they really just played a, a ferocious, committed defensive game uh, and had it pay off. But games five and six, the Leafs just just didn't show up. And and I think on some level, it, it you never excuse it in the playoffs, but on some level, maybe you could understand it in game five. But game six, uh, the way it played out is is the one that I think above and beyond any of them should should be the one that stands out um, because because how do you how do you no show the first half of a game like that after what had just happened in game five? I, I don't get it. So what I don't get is like you are known for your razor sharp wit, your hilarious commentary in the hockey world, but you kind of went Twitter dark on us, man. Like right after the Leafs, I was waiting. I was like, here comes, there's going to be a great. So did you have something in your draft folder? Were you just too upset did you just feel like you know what i wrote the call up on monday i don't need to say anything like like take us through uh after they lost in the hour or two after like what are you thinking what are you feeling and just you just didn't tweet i don't think unless yeah. i missed something no i did i mean i i wrote my pre-game seven column which was also my post-game seven column i mean i you didn't have to read super hard between the lines uh, on on what I was saying on Monday, as far as where I thought that game was going to go, uh, I I stayed off Twitter uh, during Game Seven, and uh, you know without <laughs> with without going too far down a path, uh, it, you know, frankly, I I don't need to sit there for three hours and have every random stranger who has decided they hate the Leafs and all their fans uh, popping into my mentions to uh, to let me know that. Um, I like 
everyone else here, I watch sports for fun and uh, I, I don't feel obligated to do it in ways that aren't going to be fun. So apologies if anyone was disappointed by that. But yeah, I, I, Twitter Twitter was closed for me uh, uh, for uh, for most of that evening and uh, remains closed to uh, to a lot of people uh, going forward. Yeah. And you know what? And I, and I see the way that Mitch Marner has kind of ducked out of um, social media and I, and I don't blame him. Listen, I'm all for, uh, I think, fair, like, I remember Daniel Alfredson told me this years ago, and this was when Ottawa was really struggling. In the, you remember the early 2000s, Senators couldn't get over the hump. And I remember Daniel Alfredson telling me, and this was right around the time there was uh, trade rumors around him. I remember him telling me specifically, saying, listen, I'll never just, you know, if you criticize me on the ice, I'll never have a problem with you. Just don't ever, don't ever take a shot at my personality, my family, or anything off the ice. He's like, everything I do on the ice, I want you to know that's fair game. And I I, I always remembered that. And I feel like uh, Mitch Marner in particular has been the target of some stuff that kind of goes beyond just on the ice. And I see Mitch Marner like dropping all of his social media accounts and I don't necessarily blame him to be honest with you. No, it's uh, I mean look, some of this criticism is fair. Which doesn't mean it's it's right, but it's it's fair in the sense that, you know, if you're getting down to guys commitment or you know, that sort of thing, it's 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 kind of a gray area. And, but it does matter. And, and look, it, it, I always try not to go too far down this path of, of lecturing fans about some of this stuff, because at the end of the day, virtually everyone cares too much about this league, this sport, the results of what we see on the ice. Uh, if, if we all cared a rational amount We'd, we'd barely even be talking about this stuff. It's it's a bunch of guys out there batting a puck around. We we care about it more than we should. And as part of that, that's why this league gets to be a billion-dollar league. That's why these players get to make millions of dollars. That's why guys like you and me get to do this as our job. So I don't want to sit here and, and act like the, the passion from fans, both positive and negative, is is is... is a problem. I don't want to say that it's something that they should be able to flip on and off like a switch. Um, some of this is it kind of goes with the territory, but some of it doesn't. Some of it goes too far, and and yeah, obviously when we 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 know what what it can be like on social media. You you can imagine if you're front and center in the middle of it with millions of followers, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine how it can go. And yeah, absolutely. Get, Get off of that stuff, and uh, that there's you can be mad at Mitch Marner. He had a bad series. Go ahead and be disappointed. Go ahead and be mad. He's not obligated to listen to you on that. He's he's not obligated to sit there and take it. He's he's got to take it from his coaches and his teammates and whoever else. He he doesn't have to take it from you as a fan. Uh, and if he's making a decision to to not engage with that, that's probably the right call. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, I think a, a lot of people are probably like, oh man, it's the two Canadian guys talking about all the Canadian st- series and storylines. So let's, Sean, talk about the series that I think we were probably the most excited about uh, probably this is the series we had circled for weeks, if not months, and that was the Colorado Avalanche and the Vegas Golden Knights. And boy, uh, Colorado does it again, Miko Rantanen. I know uh, Pete DeBoer and the Vegas Golden Knights, not happy that uh, you know you give Colorado a, a power play in overtime. But the Avalanche are six for six in the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. Sean, is there anybody stopping them? I mean, Tampa Bay, I guess, maybe, but like... Are we are we on a collision course for Tampa, Colorado, right now? I mean that it'd be cool if we were because that would be a hell of a series. Um, yeah, but we're two games into the second round. You know, again, kind of like last week. Let's not get ahead of ourselves on on this. Vegas is still in this. Hurricanes are still in this. And uh, somebody pointed out to me, and I'd forgotten about this, but they they pointed to the '99 Red Wings. Now, if you don't remember that team, they had just won the Stanley Cup two years in a row. They're going for number three. At the 99 deadline, they load up. They go, they, I mean, they just go on a shopping spree and bring in all sorts of big name veterans. They look unbeatable and they go into the first round and they sweep, just like Colorado did. And they go into the second round and they win the first two games. And so it's it's six straight wins to start the playoffs. And people are going, it's over, man. Like this, it, it just their name on the Stanley Cup now. Go ahead and get a head start. And what happens after that? They lose four straight and end up exiting the second round in six games. Now, the interesting thing there is who was the team that knocked them out? It was the Colorado Avalanche. So Colorado fans who have been around long enough know that this stuff can turn pretty quickly. Uh, and, and you know, same same thing in, in Tampa and Carolina. This 2 nothing is... Two nothing's a big lead, but it's not four, and uh, there's still a ways to go. That having been said, man, Colorado looks good. That that first game, okay, like maybe oh. we give Vegas a mulligan on that. You, you've just come off a hard fought series. Uh, there was that that sort of somewhat strange decision to to go with Robin Lehner. It's it's it, that it just wasn't their night. And if you're a Vegas fan or a Vegas player, you kind of at the end of game one go, you know what, just burn the tapes. We're not learning anything from this. They're going to get a real game from us game two. They didn't get it tonight. We didn't show up, but we'll show up for game two. And they did show up for game two, and Colorado still won. And that's the frustrating part. That's where you're sitting there going, okay, you know what, we weren't ready for game one, but we threw our best punch in game two, and and we still we still lost that one. So it's tough. Uh, it's, uh, you know, obviously Colorado at this point has to be the prohibitive favorite for that series and and to win the Stanley Cup. Uh, and if if we get them against Tampa in the final, that, that would be just uh, a fantastic one for the ages. But 
there's six other teams still in this that are going to say, hey, wait a second, uh, we're we're in the mix too. Yeah, I, that ninety nine. I can't believe the Red Wings and the Avs met in the second round of the playoffs. I don't. I have no recollection of that. And was that the year you would know this? Was that the year Detroit got Wendell Clark? Yep, that was. Yeah. They, they got okay. Wendell Clark. They got. Uh, Bill Ranford. It was just uh, the, I think Uwe Krupp was one of it. Like it was, they were just airlifting in guys from NHL '94 and just just dropping them in as support pieces. And uh, you're you're sitting there going, man, these guys are already the best team in the league. They're adding all this support. It's it's over, but it's you know it's 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 never over in the NHL. Even back then in '99, let alone today, where there's so much parity and so little to choose from between the the very best teams and uh it's uh, you know there there's i i will predict that at least i think one of those two series the Colorado Vegas or the Carolina Tampa has still got some some serious twists and turns left as as far as um not being done as quickly as it looks like they might be yeah, it's not unlike Toronto-Montreal, where after four games, we were like, man, this is a dud series. No one's going to remember it. And then, sure enough, the, the back half of it played out uh, in a much different way. And maybe that's what we're going to get uh, in those in those other uh, series. Now, I want to ask you this, too, because I think it's interesting. I, I feel like a few years ago, Sean, there is a feeling in the hockey world that, you know, you don't have to have a stud goalie to win the cup. And let, like if you go back, there was a time where like if you didn't have Hashik Brodeur, Waugh, or Belfort, I'm sorry, you're not winning the cup, right? It was like, yep. those are the guys. But then, like, post-lockout, like, Cam Ward won a cup, and then, you know, even Chicago with Corey Crawford got a couple of cups. They got, uh, you know, um, anti um, uh, the Emmy won a cup, yeah. uh, like like so like it, there, even Matt Murray kind of came in out of nowhere. There, so there was kind of this feeling like you know, it's better to build a good team, and you can win with a uh, a pretty good goalie. You don't have to have one of these kind of elite blue chip Hall of Fame style goalies. But as I look at the final eight, is there anything to be said for it? Man, maybe you do need to draft a goalie in the first round because of the eight teams that are left, Sean, five of them, which I think is a high number, five of them have goalies that were drafted in the first round. The Islanders have Semyon Varlamov, who was taken in the first round. The Golden Knights have Marc-Andre Fleury, who was taken in the first round. Kerry Price was taken in the first round. Tuka Rask was taken in the first round. And uh, Vasilevsky. Now, granted, Vasilevsky and Price, I think, are the only ones that were actually drafted by the team that they're with. But is there something to be said for, hey, you know what? Like, maybe we need to, to think about drafting goalies in the first round again because teams seem so reluctant to do it. Yeah, I, I, I will admit when you showed me that stat, I was... I, I kind of did a double take because you're right. That's been the conventional wisdom for a few years now that you, you don't take goalies in the first round. And, and the reason for that is they just take so much longer to develop than defensemen and defensemen take longer to develop than forwards. So, uh, you know, if you, you draft a forward high in the NHL, there's a good chance he's in your lineup from day one. Defensemen, less common, but some guys do it. Usually with a defenseman, you're going to wait a year or two. With a goaltender, you might be waiting three, four, five plus years. We, we see a lot of goalies don't even debut in the NHL or, or at least as, as anything approaching starters until they're 25 years old. And part of this, I think, is GMs 
not wanting to have that patience. I mean, the, the general manager in the NHL, it's a what have you done for me lately job. And if I'm sitting there drafting 18 year olds and you're telling me this goal is going to be great seven years from now, hey, I'm probably not the GM of this team seven years from now. So I, I want a guy who's going to help me right now. I don't want, I'm not drafting guys for the next guy who's going to come in and replace me. So I think there's some of that, but there's also just the idea that, hey, there's so much uncertainty. Who knows what you're getting? And Henrik Lundqvist was drafted in what, like the sixth or seventh round. Dominic Hasek was drafted so late that that round doesn't even exist anymore. Sometimes you can find guys late. So why would you use a top pick uh, on a goaltender? It's, It's just not something that you're supposed to do. And yet here we have all of these guys, you know, five, five out of eight, and it would have been five out of eight, even if the, if the Leafs had gone through, because Jack Campbell was another first round goaltender, although he's been one that's, that's bounced around the league before he, he started playing like it. But uh, maybe this starts to shift that thinking. And, and maybe we, we see teams start to say, you know what, maybe not at the very top of the draft, although Marc-Andre Fleury was a one and Carey Price was a five. But by the time I get to the late in the first round, do I want to pick a guy who projects as a middle six option? Or do I want to pick a guy who maybe projects as my starting goaltender, who's who's going to be the guy leading me out on the ice for, for playoff games for a decade? Um, it could be it could be a shift. And I think it would be it would be kind of neat if, if it happened. See how it played out. Yeah. And, you know. This conversation about drafting goalies is a natural segue for us to chat about the NHL draft lottery that unfolded on uh, Wednesday night. And I got to ask you, like, it really, and and it probably because the first, whatever, 13 picks, 12, whatever, all went in order. It really felt like it lacked any drama, tension. I'll give them credit. Like that background music was pretty, it was almost like, uh, like from Unsolved Mysteries or something. You know, you have that kind of eerie background music. That's the only thing that added a touch of drama. Otherwise, boy, it felt like a pretty, I don't know, like uh drama free evening. Yeah. Is that, is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was a letdown. Um, and, and that's fine. It's, it's sometimes, the lottery is going to play out in a crazy way. We've seen that in the past where you, a bunch of teams move up and there's always people then saying, well, wait a second, a bunch of teams shouldn't be able to move up. And you're going, well, that's one of the things that's possible when you set your system up this way. Uh, this was the opposite of that. I mean, uh, it, you know, the, the way it's structured, if, if people don't know, is that it's it's not like they don't just put all the team logos in and pull out a ping pong ball. If If they did that, you could just show us the drawing and, and it'd be probably more fun that way. There's this whole complicated system where they're drawing numbers and there's this chart they have to cross-reference. And so it all gets done beforehand. And then they just come out with the cards and they start revealing it. And because of the way it works, basically, you know what team is supposed to show up in a given spot. And if they do show up, that means they didn't they didn't win the lottery, they didn't move. And if they don't show up, it means they've moved up to the top and you got to find out when and from a pure drama perspective, you want to have a couple of those teams make the move and then you get to the end and you try to figure out who won. And, and this one didn't happen. Uh, the lottery was won by teams one and three. There was only two spots. Remember this year, usually there's there's been three, but the, the NHL decided to change that. Uh, we didn't get any of those big moves. And look, I mean, I, I know I've heard from a lot of fans in recent years who that's how they think it should work. They don't want to see 
teams making big moves up. They want the bad teams uh, to uh, to to be the ones who benefit. And we've got one team that was dead last and one team that doesn't have a single player. So those are the two teams that need it the most, I guess. The other thing I think that was playing into this maybe feeling like a bit of a dud is it's it's one of those drafts where there's a half dozen guys that are not quite interchangeable, but at a pretty similar tier at the top of the draft. There's not a Connor McDavid sitting there where you're going, man, whoever has that number one, it, it changes everything. Owen Power, whoever's first round pick, is probably going to be a very good player, but it, it doesn't feel like one of those years where, oh man, if we drop from three to four, that changes everything. It, it probably, for a lot of those teams, doesn't change all that much at all. I, I, I'm thinking Jim Neal pulling out the earbuds might be one of that the most gifted gifable moments in draft lottery history, right? Like McDavid's face when he found out he was going to Edmonton is one of those moments in the draft lottery people remember. I'm feeling like Jim Neal pulling out the earbuds is going to end up uh, being a pretty iconic moment here. We did between that and remember the the weird Patrick Liney uh, interview <laughs> yes. where he was like sprawled out. Like we need an earbud sponsorship on the NHL draft lottery because that that seems to be what provides most of the uh, the most memorable moments. You know, I I know that you kind of wrote a column leading into the draft lottery with the you know looking at hey what would be the most chaotic uh, result? What would be the you know what, what are the franchises that deserve it the most? Look, I feel terrible for Buffalo Sabres fans. I really do. Like I think that's one of the I always think about that guy who phoned into the I think his name was Dwayne yep. from Buffalo who phoned in and just. Gave one of the most passionate, uh, authentic pleas and frustrating uh, rants in the history of Sports Talk Radio in North America. So I got a lot of time for Sabres fans. So I felt like, you know what, I'm okay with the Sabres winning the draft lottery. Now, I know a lot of people feel like they're kind of like the mini Oilers where they're always at the top of the draft. They don't deserve it. The, the team that I wouldn't have mind, I'll be honest with you, I kind of feel for the Columbus Blue Jackets, Sean. I kind of yeah. wouldn't have minded seeing uh, John Tortorella uh, oh, sorry, not John. Uh, John Davidson and Yarmo Kekalainen, um, who is sitting side by side, uh, win the draft lottery. That would have been, to me, that would have been a pretty cool story. Yeah, it's. Uh, I always struggle with this because you're you're sitting there watching the lottery and you're going, okay, who deserves it? Well, what does what does that even mean? And and we end up getting in these these arguments where it's like, you know, well, the Sabers deserve it. They're the worst team, but so. Do they deserve it then? If you're that bad, should you really be rewarded for it? Or should it go to a team that's a little bit better? Yeah, but that team that's a little bit better, they don't really need it. So they don't deserve it. And and we kind of go around and around. And, and usually I find in 90% of cases, people's view of who should win the lottery happens to line up exactly with whatever team uh, they happen to like. But yeah, Columbus would have been up there for me. Um, you know, they're clearly about to... To go down the road of a rebuild, I will always respect what they did a couple of years ago as far as kind of pushing all their chips in uh, to try to win in the playoffs. Uh, and and clearly, if you're a Blue Jackets fan, it's been a tough week finding out about Seth Jones probably not not coming back. It would have been cool to see them get some good news. The other team uh, that I, I had listed as a team that I would have liked to have seen win was the Vancouver Canucks. Because the season they went through... Forget about on the ice. Just all the off-ice stuff was, was such a nightmare. With the COVID, with the long delay, with then that schedule crunch and, and being, um, you know, having to play out that full schedule even after the playoffs started. Uh, 
it, I think it was it was a brutal season. But the thing is, they they still played hard down the stretch. And I always kind of look at this, and at the end of every draft lottery, you you can look at it, and based on the way that they hand out the numbers, you can sit there and go, okay, who won? The team moved up from eight to one. Well, that was the spot that was going to win the draft uh, draft lottery. Is that eighth spot? So you can actually look back some years and say this team was in that spot by one point. If they had won or lost one extra game, they would have moved out of that spot and somebody else would have moved in. And I I think the Vancouver Canucks, we all would have understood if they had just gone over for the rest of the season once they came back. Uh, And some of their fans probably would have been okay with that, get the better lottery odds. I think it would have been cool to see them win knowing that, hey, they won because they kept playing because they put in that effort and, and won a couple of games down the stretch. That's what put them over the top, plus the fact that they've never had the top pick and, and all this other stuff. Um, but as any Canucks fan would tell you, uh, the draft lottery is not their friend, and, and I, I guess there was no reason for that to change this year. Okay, one final uh, question for you on this topic of the draft and the lottery. So the way they do the lottery, right, they reveal starting from pick 15 down or sort of up to one, right? Like it's reverse order. Yep. So I had somebody reach out to me on Twitter and say, would you guys ever be on board if one year that's how they announce the actual draft for the first round? So imagine, let's take this year. Let's say let's say the Avalanche win the cup, okay? So they pick 32nd, and then it's a made-for-TV event, and Joe Sackett gets up. He's the first guy with the 32nd pick, the Avalanche, and then you go down. Tampa's next, and then whoever, you know, Final Four. And you're counting up to one. Which, is there any merit to that? You know what? That's I, I've never thought of that. Neither had I. I don't hate it. I think especially in a year like this where there's some, some question around uh, how the top of the draft is going to play out. I mean, if, if, if you do it in the Connor McDavid year, there's, there's not a lot of suspense as, as things go on. Um, but it's, you know, it's, I, I don't mind the way they do it now. But I'm I'm up for some creativity. I I appreciate the effort at least. Yeah. Again, it's outside of the box, which means it probably will never come to fruition. But I thought, you know what? I never it never even crossed my mind that that is a, a way you could unveil the uh, unveil the picks. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, Sean. Now, usually we have Jesse Granger in this spot for a little Granger things, but our pal is uh, currently traveling uh, today. He's doing that Avalanche and Golden Knight series, and uh, I know he's uh, traveling back uh, to Vegas from Denver. So he is unavailable uh, to join us for Granger things, but uh, we look forward to having Jesse back uh, in his usual spot. 
next week. But that means we can open up the mailbag here a little bit early, Sean. And a reminder uh, for listeners, you can always hit us up. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. And that is how Chris Jenkins found us. Uh, Chris has an email here uh, saying, look, uh, with the recent grumbling that Seth Jones is wanting to test free agency next summer and Columbus possibly looking to trade him, what kind of return do you think the Blue Jackets could look at and what kind of teams would be interested in him? As a Blue Jackets fan, this is tough to swallow after years of losing players. That comes in from Chris. So let's, yeah, let's chat about, I think, maybe the biggest story, Sean, that's come out of the last week in the hockey world has nothing to do with the playoffs and everything to do with one of the premier defensemen saying he wants out of uh, out of Columbus. Yes, it's certainly the biggest off-season story for the for the chunk of the league that is has already started the off-season. And yeah, uh, this is tough. If you're a Columbus fan, I mean, th- this is we we remember the exodus of free agents in 2019 and and each one of those was kind of a unique case and you know, maybe you just you, you kind of chalk that up to to guys wanting to pursue different situations, but between the Pierre-Luc Dubois thing at the beginning of this year and now Seth Jones, it, it's demoralizing as a fan. That, that that's almost a the the one place you never want to be as a fan is to sit there and go, "We're we're a team that people don't want to play for," uh, you know. And and why is that? What is it about the team or the city or or, or whatever it is? Because you know you you can have a bad team, you can have a bad coach, a bad GM, but if if you're just a place that star players don't want to be, where do you get any optimism from at that point? So th- this is th- th- this is a, a tough one to swallow if you're a Columbus fan. I guess the good news would be, as far as the question of who wants this guy and how much what what can they expect to get in return, I think the answer is a ton of teams are going to want him. And I think you're going to get a lot in return. Uh, the question that I have, and I think I know the answer to it, but I, I can't say I do for sure. When Seth Jones says, hey, I'm, I'm going to test free agency, just so you know, Columbus, I'm not signing anything. I'm hitting free agency next year. Does he mean I'm not coming back to Columbus? Or does he actually mean, no, I want to hit free agency? There are some players that'll say, I only get a chance to do this once. I want to go through the whole process. I want to hear from as many teams as possible. And that's the question that GMs and, and people around the league are going to be asking when they call up Columbus and say, yeah, I, I want to make an offer for Seth Jones, but I need to know, do I have a chance to sign this this guy before free agency? Or is he really actually set on on hitting the market? And I know I'm only getting him for a year because if I'm only getting him for a year, then my offer is becomes a lot lower than it would be if I think I can lock him in. I said, I suspect I know the answer. I think the answer is that he'd be willing to sign long-term in in a different situation than Columbus. But that's the part you got to find out if you're a GM getting ready to make an offer because uh, if he does have his his mindset on testing the market and having that experience, suddenly now, I mean, you're maybe renting the guy for a year. He's still a good player. He's still a guy a lot of GMs would take even for one year but you're going to give up a lot more if you feel like you're getting a piece for the next decade. Yeah, and I, I it's exactly it. I think if you could pull off essentially like a sign-and-trade, right, where this summer you get Jones to a six-year extension, seven-year extension, whatever it is, and then you acquire him, that's a game-changer, right? It completely alters it. So let me throw this scenario 
out at you. We'll kind of do it like as a who says no. Seth Jones for Mitch Marner. On the condition, on the condition of you, Toronto is able to sign Seth Jones to a reasonable contract extension. Who says no? Mitch Marner for Seth Jones. Well, I mean, from from the sounds of it, the Leafs say no because they they went and did their availability yesterday, and it, it sounds like the plan going forward is same old, same old. Uh, but yeah, you're you're going to hear the Leafs mentioned when it comes to Seth Jones because it's the Leafs and they have to be in on every player, and that's what it would have to look like, right? I mean, you can't do the teams like Toronto can't be giving up. Oh, we'll give you a first and some prospects. They don't have any first. They've traded them all away. In fact, Columbus has got their first already. Uh, and they don't have the cap room to do it with prospects. So it's got to be a big player for a big player. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Columbus takes that deal from, from the bargaining position they're in. I'm not completely sure that Toronto does, um, but there'd be a lot of people who'd, who'd like to see it. And, and that's, that's what's going to be interesting to me from the Columbus perspective is what kind of deal do they want? Do they want picks and prospects and we're going to rebuild? Or do they want a Seth Jones level star to come in and replace him um that's how this stuff used to work we used to call them hockey trades now it's always uh we want to pick a player and a prospect it it seems like that's kind of the cut and paste answer um but i'm curious i'm curious to see if columbus wants to use this to signal the full-scale long-term rebuild or if they're saying no we we want some other real good young player uh who can slide into the lineup and I think just to wrap up the, uh, again, the question from Chris and, and saying, look, as a Jackets fan, this is tough to swallow. You know, I think you can almost in the past, you could explain it away. I, at least it certainly felt there was undercurrents of that. When they traded Pierre-Luc Dubois, it was like, oh man, it's got to be tough to play for Tortorella. Yeah. Like, that guy's going to grind you and grind you. Torch is out of the picture, right? So, we like, don't even know who's coming in to replace him. So it can't even be that. Yeah. And that's the thing that I find interesting is that, I think a lot of people are like, man, it would be hard to play for John Tortorella for years and years. Well, he's not the, he's not there. He, you can't draw a direct line between Seth Jones wanting out and the head coach, which you could have done, I think, with Dubois. You could have done on you know Panarin, Duchesne, Bobrovsky, whoever else you want to say. It might have been a factor, but not now. And that's it, what's really troubling. What's, what's so tough about it, like we, we used to see this before the cap. There were certain teams, um, the Oilers were one of them. For a while, after the glory years, into the 90s, they developed some good players. But as soon as the players got good, they were on the way out because they couldn't afford to keep them. And part of the whole rationale behind putting a hard cap in place was to make sure those situations didn't happen anymore. Uh, you know, nobody nobody ever wants to be the Montreal Expos. Like, remember the last few years of the Expos where it was just great players, uh, amazing players coming in, and then they were gone. As, as soon as it was time to get paid, they were gone. There's no... You can't find any hope. There's no optimism there as a fan uh, if if that happens. And I'm not saying that's happening in Columbus because, like I said, some of these Panarin and Bobrovsky and guys like that, there were some unique things in each of those situations. So, um, but uh, you really hope that's not happening in Columbus because it's great. It, it, you know, it's a great town. It's a great it's a great fans, um, and you really hope that they're not suddenly just running straight up the treadmill all the time, trying to develop guys that they're not going to be able to hold on to. You know, as as you talk about star players leaving and the Expos and the Blue Jackets, I got to tell you, as the guy who covers the Ottawa Senators, I feel seen right now. Okay, I, mm-hmm. I'm here. I feel your pain, Columbus. It's it. It's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. And at some point, you say to yourself, "When is the? When is it going to stop?" Right? Like in in Ottawa, it was Yashin 
and Heatley and Alfredson and Spezza and Carlson and Duchesne and Stone and Pajot and Turris. And you're like, okay, well, now it's going to stop. And it's like, man, I, I hope they can get Brady Kachuk locked up long term. But until it happens, you don't believe it. And that's that's the problem, I think, for Columbus fans. Is, um, and it's a great analogy with the Expos because even at the end, it's like they had Vladdy Guerrero and they had Pedro and they had some some really nice pieces. They couldn't hang on to them. Couldn't hang on to them. All right. Uh, to the voicemail we go. Believe it or not. Yes, the voicemail. It's back up and running. You want to drop us a, uh, a voicemail? We'd love to hear your voice. Uh, leave us a voicemail. 845-445-8459. 845-445-8459. Let's have a listen to Eric from Detroit. Hey, I see a lot of similarities between the Detroit Red Wings of the 90s and today's Toronto Maple Leafs. The Red Wings underachieved through the early and mid-90s. A lot of first-round exits. And then finally, in 97, race the Cup when they were kind of singled out as not going to be able to make it. So I was wondering what your thoughts are and if the Maple Leafs are really just going to take some time to get there and learn the hard way. Thanks a lot. All righty. Eric from Detroit trying to draw the analogy between the current edition of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the pre-Stanley Cup winning edition of the uh, Red Wings in the early 90s. Sean, this will... Uh, fit our obligatory once a month men mention of Nick Borshevsky for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, people are looking for comparisons for, for, for the Leafs. I've, I've heard a few, uh, the, the 2010 capitals being an obvious one, especially since they kind of went into crisis mode after blowing a three, one lead against who else, but the Montreal Canadians um, but the, the Bruins around that same era had, had a lot of playoff meltdowns and, and they stuck with it and, and won a Stanley cup. Uh, the Redwood comparison isn't a bad one, different era, obviously, um, different situation, but yeah, the, the thing that people forget about that Red Wings team, uh, and, and if, you know, if people don't remember the Red Wings were bad for a lot of years. They they started to get good with Steve Eiserman, had Sergei Fedorov. We're building that core, Nicholas, a young Nicholas Lidstrom. I think they win one round in the early 90s, but then they go into 93, they play the Leafs. People remember that as being a huge upset. It really wasn't. that The two teams are pretty similar in the standings, but it was a series the Red Wings should have won, and they were up to nothing early in the series and it looked like they were going to cruise. They lose that series. That's bad. The next year, they lose to the San Jose Sharks, which is far worse. That was one of the all-time stunning upsets because the Sharks had just been a joke of a franchise their first few years in the league, and then they come in and they beat the Red Wings. Um, there was a lot of talk that, you know what, this team, there's something wrong with this Red Wings team. They're not built to get over the hump. And, and there was people who said, you can't win with Steve Eiserman. And but you you want to, this is the one I always come back to whenever I hear somebody making a take about it. You can't win with this guy or that guy. There were people who wanted to trade Steve Eiserman in Detroit. And in fact, there's talk that there was a deal on the table, depending on who you talk to, may even have been agreed to, which was Steve Eiserman was going to go to the Ottawa Senators and the player Detroit was going to get back was Alexi Yashin. Now, think about Steve Eiserman and how he is viewed today. Just this legendary leader this legendary winner in the league. There was a time when people said, yeah, you can't win with Steve Eisenman, but you know who I bet you could win with? Alexi Yashin. And I just, I think that every time 
somebody's in on, you know, Joe Thornton or whoever, whoever the guy is at a given moment, Ovechkin went through it that you that you just can't win with. I always think back to the time where there were Detroit fans going, get this Usman bum out of here. I want this Yashin guy to be leading the way. Um, now, that having been said, the, the Red Wings went to the final in 95. Uh, and and they didn't they didn't win, but that was part of that narrative. So they they at least were winning rounds. That the Red Wings team in 96 was one of the best regular season teams of all time. The Leafs have been a pretty good regular season team. They haven't been that good. They haven't found that level. Um, so I don't think the comparison completely holds. But the one other piece of this that I will mention is, yeah, it's true. The Red Wings, they didn't trade Eisenman. They didn't trade Fedorov. They didn't trade Nick Lidstrom. They didn't panic. But they also didn't stand pat. And in fact, after they lost in 96 to the Avalanche, which was considered an upset because that Detroit team had been so good and spurred all sorts of more talk about, you know, there's something wrong with this team. They can't get over the hump. They can't win. They made a real big trade at the start of the next season that a lot of people look back on and say, that's the move that put them over the top. That's what changed the culture. That's what changed everything. And what's interesting, of course, is that guy that they went out and got to change the culture was Brendan Shanahan. And now he's the guy all these years later who's got to make the decision for the Maple Leafs. So I, I, as much as we heard Brendan Shanahan and, and the rest of them yesterday saying, stay the course, we believe in this core, um, if anybody would know that sometimes a team really does need something to change, you think it would be Brendan Shanahan because he was that change for a team that went on to win two Stanley Cups because of it. Yeah, and I think too, when you look at at Toronto's window here, their window is very much open. And look, Washington, they made the playoffs for the first time with Ovechkin in 07-08, and it took them 10 years to win a Stanley Cup. 10 years in the Ovechkin era where people were saying, you'll never win with Ovi and Backstrom. And guess what? They did. I even think back, Sean, and this is a little bit before our time, but like the New York Islanders were a super dominant team in the late 70s and they couldn't get over the hump. Like Lanny McDonald and the Leafs beat them one year in a shocking upset. The Rangers take them out. Like there's people that wondered, man, maybe the Islanders will never get over the hump. And, and then they did. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's really important that you understand that the Pittsburghs of the worlds and the Chicago's of the worlds there's no one set formula, right? Like there's not one, hey, we're going to tear it down and then within three to five years, you're going to win a cup. There's no guarantees. There's no, there's no linear, perfect line that, that, uh, that happens. It's an up and down uh, thing. Ask San Jose Sharks fans how long uh, they had to wait. To, they, they got to a cup. They didn't win, but they, look how long it took. Ottawa fans know the feeling. It was eight, eight years of not getting to a cup. And people, you'll never win with Daniel Alfredson. And then one year he was just great. And you're like, actually, you probably could win. With that guy. And I think my favorite example, too, you brought up Iserman with people say you can't win with that guy. I always think of the Philadelphia Flyers cutting bait on Jeff Carter and Mike Richards. And people say, you'll never win with Carter and Richards. And then guess what? You can win with anybody in this league. You really can. Just got to find the right mix. You you do have to do it. The, the only other thing I'd say, because you, you're right, there's there have been lots of real good teams that, uh, I mean, the Mario Lemieux Penguins. Didn't, didn't even make the playoffs for years. And uh, people were wondering what's wrong with them. We always talk about those. We talk about the Islanders, the Penguins, the Red Wings. You know what other team everybody thought was, was going to win a cup? Was the Canucks 10 years ago. 
and it never happened. That Senators team that you mentioned, a lot of people were saying, you know, someday it's all going to come together. And it, they went to the final, but they never won. The Sabres are in that same era. Real good teams. Kept waiting for it to happen. It, it never did. Those teams are getting out of the first round, obviously. But nothing is guaranteed. Yeah, and for every team that you can point to and say people thought they weren't going to do it, and they did, there's another team where you say, you know what? People said, be patient. It's going to happen someday, and, and it never did. And then maybe the Sharks are, are kind of the, the prime example of that. You never know in this league. Uh, nothing's promised, and um, I don't think there should be panic in Toronto because nobody ever makes good decisions when you're panicking. But there should be some urgency. They've, Leaf fans don't want to hear this. There's only three years left before Austin Matthews is an unrestricted free agent. There's four years before Mitch Marner's an unrestricted free agent. The window is not closing, but I don't think it's necessarily open for the next decade either, depending on how things go the next few years. As uh, as we always do, Sean, I'm going to wrap up our show, even though we were just kind of talking about a little bit of hockey history here, uh, with an- answering that uh, question from Eric in Detroit. Uh, let's wrap it up with a little This Week in Hockey History, and let's go back to June 1st, 1996. June 1st, 1996, the Florida Panthers are playing the Pittsburgh Penguins in Game 7 of the Conference Final. Winner gets a date with the Colorado Avalanche uh, in, in the final, and the Florida Panthers shocked the hockey world with their kind of lock-it-down uh, style of hockey. They beat the Penguins 2-1. to one in game seven. And I know when people think of the Penguins era, Sean, they always think about, man, the David Voldick goal that did them in, in 93. Is there any argument to be made that this, this one in 96 was actually almost as painful because maybe if they get to the cup, Hey, we would have seen a Mario against Patrick Waugh in the final and maybe they win. And maybe Mario's love of the game is, is reestablished. But is there any argument to be made that the Panthers uh, beating the Penguins in 96 was just as damaging to the Penguins and maybe arguably it's even more damaging to the game of hockey. Yeah, from a Penguins perspective, this one's got to hurt because this really was the last great Penguins team of that era. They they had some good teams after, but this is around the time where um, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but, but Mario Lemieux doesn't have much longer left, uh, at, at least on the first chapter of his career. Um, the finances are, are going to really start to catch up with them uh, pretty soon. We're going to see players moving out. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it is a, you know, 93, you looked at that team and, and it, that was stunning and painful because that was your chance to win three cups in a row. You were getting into dynasty territory and it, and it all disappeared. Um, but at least then you could say, you know what? Can't wait till next year. Let's bring these guys back. 96, by that point, you, you could almost start to see it around the edges but I, I i agree with you and then people who have listened to me for a while know where i'm going to go on this i to this day think that was one of the most damaging results for the nhl in in its in its history and, and i hate to say that because i mean obviously jesus last time the panthers won a series i don't want to pick on them and try to take away the the, the one great playoff run that they've ever had but First of all, I mean, just the final that that would have cost us. I mean, Colorado, Pittsburgh, my goodness, Merrill Lemieux against Patrick Waugh, Sackick against Jagger, Forsberg, Francis, uh, who, who was injured for, for the Panthers series but could have come back. I mean, that just would have been absolute amazing star power. And instead, we got this awful final that was a, a four-game sweep and just no entertainment value. But bigger picture, 
and I've said this before, if you say the words dead puck era to a typical fan and you, you say, who started that? Virtually every fan gives you the same answer. The 95 Devils. Yeah. They blame the 95 Devils, the, the neutral zone trap and, and all of this, and they beat that high-powered Detroit team. And there's some truth to that. But those 95 Devils had Scott Stevens on defense, Scott Niedermeyer on defense, Martin Brodeur in goal. Uh, yeah, you, you can shut teams down when you have three Hall of Famers on your back end. And, you know, Brodeur and, and Niedermeyer were, were, were young at the time, but they were already established stars. The Devils showed us that if you have a commitment to team defense and you've got superstars back there, that you can shut down a high-powered team that has superstars up front. The Florida Panthers showed us that you didn't even need the stars. You just needed the commitment to the defense and the clutch and grab and all of that stuff, and you could do it with Scott Mellenby. And that, I think, is the moment where a lot of teams around the league went, wait a second. A lot of owners said, why am I paying all these guys? Why am I paying these 50-goal guys? Give me some 20-goal guys who can clutch and grab. I can win with them, too. And I really feel like that's the series. That's the result in the season that that really pushed us down that path of uh, into the dead puck era that that I would argue is still going on to this day. This, this idea that everything's about defense, everything's about stopping the other team from scoring and trying to win two one. Uh, I really feel like that all started with that Panthers team. Cause that was not a good team on paper. They had a good goalie, John Van Beesbrook, but no stars anywhere else in the lineup. And they were able to take out this offensive juggernaut by just clutching and grabbing and tackling their way, which was how the game was played back then. I, I'm not saying they did anything wrong, but boy, I wish Gary Bettman had watched that series and said, you know what, we got to do something. We got to change how this game's called and how it's played uh, because I can't have a league full of teams trying to play like the Florida Panthers. And he didn't do that. And now we got a league full of teams trying to play like the 96 Florida Panthers every single season. Yeah. Um, do you remember the Panthers defense that year? I remember Ed Jovanovsky was there. Like he was a teenager. You, like the guy that probably logged the most minutes for them, Robert Svela. Former Leaf great yep. Robert Svela. And he got, it, the, yeah, he was, he was a good player. I, I'm not saying this was a bad team, but, you know, this, it's, it, it is very different to be able to, to win with stars who play defense, which has always been part of hockey, versus to say, we got Scott Mellenby and Brian Scrudland, and we're going to shut down Mario Lemieux and Yammer Jagger. That, that was the moment where I think the light bulb went off on a lot of people around the league that, hey, this... There's there's a new way to build a winning team, and uh, the NHL could have put a stop to it. They could have they could have said this isn't the game that we want, and they didn't. Here we are. Last one on this week in hockey history, June third, nineteen ninety three. A lot of Montreal Canadiens fans will remember this fondly. LA Kings fans, not so much. Kings are up in Game Two of the Stanley Cup Final. Sean uh, about to take a two nothing stranglehold on that series. Habs are down by a goal. They've decided to pull Patrick Waugh, and then Jacques Demers famously calls for a stick measurement of Marty McSorley's stick. McSorley gets the penalty, and uh, the Canadians go on a six-on-four. Eric Desjardins scores to tie it. Eric Desjardins scores to win it in overtime to complete the hat trick. I think about this all the time, and I think of, like if you think of the boldest in-game decisions ever made by a coach, like it's hockey's a little bit different, isn't it? Like 
like if you think about baseball, you can think about like, you know, Grady Little or like there, there's, there's so much more room for in-game decision making. It feels like in some of the other sports, baseball in particular, probably football too, with some play calling. Yeah. Hockey, hockey, not so much, but Jacques Demers decision to call for a stick measurement, I think might be the boldest and certainly the one that worked out the best, but like, has there ever been anything in game as bold as this in the hockey world? Yeah, it's it's a good question because you're right. Just the nature of the sport, it it doesn't really lend itself all that. I mean, the, the in in game stuff, you're talking about shuffling the lines, maybe pulling a goalie, but uh, it's 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 not like the NFL where you can be fourth and goal and call the Philly special at the at the goal line and uh, you know, either succeed or fail and, and live in infamy. This one might be up there, and and here's. Here's my thing when it when it comes to to this this moment. Explain to a non hockey fan why this is such a remarkable moment. It's a tough thing to explain to say. Yeah, well, you know, there's this rule in the rule book. Most teams are violating the rules pretty constantly, and if you, as a coach, say I think they're violating the rule, you can get a power play out of it. But nobody ever does it. Nobody ever makes this call. We just went through, I mean, was there a single one this season? I don't think so. I can't even remember the last time anybody called for a stick measurement. Imagine explaining that to a fan and they'd say, okay, does it never happen because nobody uses illegal sticks? And you say, no, no, lots of guys do all the time and people know about it, but you just, it's this weird thing that we just don't do. And I know to this day, there's a lot of people who are angry at Jacques Demers or they think that that Canadians wins tainted somehow because they used the rule book and even these days, when coaches are allowed to challenge, I think that was offside. I think that's goalie interference. No problem. Nobody has any issue with that. Uh, they're well within their rights. But to say, I think that guy's using an illegal stick because I can see from here that it's clearly illegal. That's somehow this this thing. Like, remember Ron Wilson did it to Jason, to Jason Spezza, Spezza. Yeah. In a Leaf Senators game. And it was front page news for days. Like this, can you believe that Ron Wilson did that? How desperate. What a... I mean, the stick was illegal. He got a, he's got he got his team a power yeah. play. Like I'm, I, I've had this conversation before, where you say like, "What if Bill Belichick was an NHL coach? Can you imagine explaining to him that yeah, we don't use this rule? Like, yeah. You can get a power play, <laughs> but we don't <laughs> use it. It's just not something that's done. Do you think he would have any time for that, or do you think he'd go, "No way, man! I'm using every advantage that I have," and yet this is this weird thing that it's just developed as yet another piece of the hockey code of conduct that you're just not ever supposed to to do this sort of thing. It's the in-game equivalent of the offer sheet. Like it's yeah, there, exactly. but you know, you shouldn't really use it. it, it um, it's the offer sheet, except at least with the offer sheet, you could say the offer sheet's probably not going to work. This will work. It's yeah. pretty much is guaranteed. And, and you know, it's fine. And, and just to, the fact, all you need to know about how rare this is, is the fact that, you say game two of the 93 final to anyone, including Habs fans, and they're going to say that's the Marty McSorley game. It's not the Eric Desjardins game, which is what yeah. it should be, because <laughs> that was the all-time. I mean, my God, that that might have been the greatest game any Canadian player, like Canadian team-based player had during that entire decade when you consider the, the stakes. And it's it's a footnote to this this weird rule invocation that that happened that is apparently not ever supposed to. Okay, and last thing, and I'd love to hear from listeners too uh, on this, because that, again, like I said, that's one of the boldest 
in-game decisions by a coach. And it worked out. The only other ones I can think of, Sean, in-game decisions, and they didn't work out in the hockey world, one would be the infamous Mark Crawford leaving Wayne Gretzky on the bench for the shootout. Right? That's, that's yeah. an in-game decision, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it backfired. And the other, also international hockey, uh, the miracle on ice game, Victor Tikhanov pulls Trechiak, right? Trechiak's yeah, Trechi- not in net for... Uh, <laughs> the that. miracle on ice. Like, yep. What was we, that? We, we've seen like some bizarre decisions that like in terms of setting the lineup or, or whatever have you. But yeah, as far as like the bold, in, in meaningful moments, we've seen coaches do weird things. I remember Scotty Bowman switching goalies on the fly once with the Penguins, uh, which I thought was awesome. But that was in like a meaningless end of the regular season game. They were just kind of goofing around. I, 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 I'm, st- I, I, there's gotta be some. So yeah, I would, I'd love to hear from, from people as, as far as, in-game decisions, uh, yeah. What are what are the ones that uh, that that uh, coach pulled off that worked, or also the ones that that didn't and maybe backfired? Yeah, and again, uh, you know, fire us a tweet, or you can drop us an email to the Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. Look at that; the hour just flew by. Sean, as always, um, listen. I, I think last week I said. Hey, when we talk again next week, it'll be the round two with the Leafs. And so, you know what? Now I'm just going to just tell you, I hope you have a great weekend. And we'll do this again next Thursday. That sounds good. There we go. We'll leave it there. Hey, and a reminder, we got a new addition to the roster coming up uh, with the Athletic Hockey Show for the next few weeks because we got the Prospect Series of the Athletic Hockey Show. Our prospect expert, Corey, um, Corey Pronman is going to be doing a show with Max Boltman. Max does a terrific job covering the Detroit Red Wings. Corey Pronman, Max Boltman, the prospect edition of the Athletic Hockey Show will start on Friday. We'll run every week until July 30th. So that's right after the NHL draft. So prospect series of the Athletic Hockey Show comes your way on Friday. And a reminder, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can join us at theathletic.com slash hockey show.